Hear now God's holy word from Galatians chapter 4. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, which corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us give thanks together. Father in heaven, we continue to rejoice in Jesus, our Savior, and we give you thanks that as on the eighth day, uh, Joseph and Mary were faithful to your covenant in bringing their son to you uh, to join him in covenant. So we uh, rejoice in his faithfulness and, and we give you thanks that you have joined us to his faithfulness and obedience by our baptisms. So we rejoice this day and continue to rejoice in our Savior. Uphold me and strengthen me to, to deliver these things clearly. Open our ears and remove all doubt and fear and distraction from our hearts. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Really is great to begin the year in the house of the Lord. It was great last week to, uh, to celebrate Christmas uh, in the house of the Lord. I think it was Hunter Hollowell who said, why don't we do this every year? And I think that's a pretty good idea, Hunter. So maybe we should do both of these things every, every year um, that uh, we begin worship and and. You know, some church traditions, they never have to worry about, are we going to cancel church on Christmas? Because they have church every year on Christmas, no matter what day it falls on. So if church falls on a Wednesday, they still worship on Wednesday because uh, the, of the importance of, of the, uh, the, the birth and the incarnation are rejoicing in that. But today is the second Sunday of Christmas. And as I said earlier in the baptism, it's the eighth day of the Christmas season, which makes it the day that we remember the circumcision of our Lord Jesus on the eighth day of his life. Paul tells us in Galatians that Jesus was born under the law. And what that means is in order for his parents to be faithful in all the ways that God required, Jesus's parents needed to be sure to have him circumcised on the eighth day, just as the law required. In order for Jesus to be a faithful man under the law, he had to be made a member of the covenant people of God. And yet, as an infant, he, this was beyond his physical human ability to do anything about this for himself. Jesus had to be brought by his parents uh, to, uh, to the covenant, had to be brought by his parents. And after 40 days, his mother was also required to make a purification offering, also according to the law. And, and it's upon the, the occasion of her offering that purification offering where M Mary and Joseph and Jesus meet uh, Simeon, whose song we heard read this morning, whose song we will sing later today. 
but, but all, of this, all of this was done according to the law. All of this that Mary and Joseph do with their young son, Jesus, all of this is in obedience to God's law. God didn't make any mistake when he chose Joseph and Mary to be the earthly parents of the Lord Jesus. Now, they're not the only faithful couple in Israel. We don't, we don't say that. But they are faithful in every respect to what God's law required of them. And that's why it's so important that we remember uh, that he, in fact, Jesus was circumcised according to the law. These details, this history of the early days of Jesus are all very important. Because Jesus is later accused by the Pharisees of being unclean. They accuse him of being a sinner, a lapsed Jew. They even accuse him of participating in the work of demons. But if you look at the record, here we have it from the beginning. Jesus and his parents were obedient every step of the way according to what God's law required of them. Without exception. They obeyed God's law as it pertains to what he required them to do with the boy, uh, Jesus. He circumcised, and at his circumcision, his parents give him the name that the angel told them to give him. They give him the name Jesus. By their obedience to both God's word through the angel and by their obedience to God's word through the law of Moses, we see what kinds of parents... Uh, Joseph and Mary were. They were steadfast. They were reliable. They were faithful. But isn't it remarkable, and it just struck me this week as I was studying this, it's remarkable to me that Jesus's reputation, his obedience, his faithfulness to the covenant at the start is dependent upon the faithfulness of others. His faithfulness to the covenant is dependent upon, uh, dependent upon the faithfulness of his parents. That for Jesus to be marked out physically, sacramentally, as a member of God's covenant people was something that was done to him before he had any say about it. No one asked him, hey, baby Jesus, do you want to be circumcised today? Nobody, nobody asked him. Nobody, nobody require, uh, inquired. They didn't wait until he was ready or gave him time to make up his mind. Joseph and Mary believed that God's promises were for them and for their children. Just as God repeats his promises over and over, these things are for you and for your children. And this is especially true of this very special child that God had given them. But in this also Mary and Joseph are not unique because this is what faithful people do. And this is what God intended through the covenant sign of circumcision, to mark out a people for himself and for him to be able to say, these are my children. These are the people united to me in covenant. I am bound to these people. I am their God and they are my people. So I'm committed. God says, I'm committed to these people. Love commits itself. Love submits itself. Love binds itself. And so the circumcised Israelite sees himself bound in covenant to a people, a body, a family, much bigger than himself. He sees faithfulness as something that's integral to the life of the whole body. When his people disobey, everyone suffers. When they are faithful to the covenant, everyone is blessed. Even the whole world is blessed when God's people are faithful to the covenant. 
And the Israelite sees himself, I am part of that whole. I'm one part of this bigger family, this bigger covenant people. I am identified with the people of God. My individual salvation and deliverance and victory rests in and upon the salvation and deliverance of the whole. I don't have life on my own. This is a very... uh, uh, anachronistic kind of idea if we try to try to force this into the into the covenant to to think that I can somehow have life on my own no throughout the Bible God saves a people in the flood God didn't uh, tell everyone to build their own life raft or to you know build your own canoe everyone who wants to live through the flood well you just you know get to work build your little uh, canoe or your your bass boat or whatever you can put together, your raft, and uh, good luck with that. Have fun. No, to survive, to be delivered through the judgment of the flood, you have an ark and you must be on the ark. And the family that is on the ark is delivered. The family that's outside the ark is destroyed. When God comes to his people in the Exodus, he delivers a people. He doesn't give every individual an escape route, a map, a a flashlight, a shovel, you know, kind of dig your way out of here. Good luck with that. No, if you're going to go, you're going to go with the people. You're going to put the blood on the doorposts. You're going to come with the people. You're going to pass through the Red Sea as a people. You're going to come to Mount Sinai and hear God's law as a people. The sign of the covenant joins you to the people who are being delivered. And you are with them and you are a part of them. Now, of course, Jesus was the only circumcised member of Israel who was able to keep the old covenant perfectly. And he, Jesus, fulfilled the law in every way. And in doing so, he opens up a new way. He's the new Adam of a new humanity. And now we're united to his obedience and we're united to his life by our new covenant sign, which is baptism. The people marked out by this sign, the people marked out by baptism are still a family. We, we, we call it, we are the church. We are the body and bride of Christ. We have an identity just as surely as the uh, Israelite had an identity given to him, imposed upon him by his circumcision. So you and I have an identity imposed upon us by our baptism. This is critical to remember in a day where everyone's coming up with their own identity. Everybody's inventing their own, uh, their, their own definition of who they are. I self-identify as a, as a marmoset today, or I self-identify as a, you know, a, 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 a asexual uh, lizard. You know, what, what am I today? I don't, I don't know. What, what do you want to be today? No, God gives us an identity in baptism. He gives us, he imposes upon us a new name, and we are given a new people, and we become a new creation. In the fellowship of the church, under her authority, and in her spiritual care, we find our people, we find our family, we find our culture, our people, our history. And what we receive in the care and in the fellowship of the church is nothing less than salvation. What we receive in the church is what Noah's family received in the ark. What we receive in the church is what individual Israelite families received in the Exodus, which is deliverance, which is victory. God always saves a people. The church is that covenant people today. But, But hardly anyone thinks of the church this way. 
Now, certainly unbelievers don't think of the church. They don't see any special authority in the church. They don't see a good deal of, 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 of benefit to the church. We get that. But more alarmingly, people who profess to be Christians do not hold the church in any kind of high regard. What Christians do hold in high regard is an atomized, individualized, consumer-driven, spiritual, emotional experience. That's what, that's what I am seeking. That's what I do want. And if the church can offer me one of those experiences on occasion, well, then that's super. But beyond that, beyond giving me the occasional pick-me-up, beyond giving me a network of friends, beyond giving me you know, a softball team to play with, uh, or, or a, uh, a, a nice club for my kids, Outside of that, the church is largely irrelevant to my salvation. The church is irrelevant to my relationship to God. It is commonly thought. My eternal life, it is thought, rests only in my personal, individual relationship to Jesus, and I can have that on my own apart from the church, apart from the sacraments, apart from the fellowship of the saints. In fact, those things kind of get in the way, don't they? Those things are distractions, people and sacraments and, and the body. Those things uh, give me more frustration than they give me joy. We, we hear this false antithesis all the time. You spend time around, uh, around Christians and you hear these things. I have Jesus, I really don't need the church. I can have my own genuine religious experience which does not require any commitment to a body. It doesn't require any commitment to a people. And I draw my identity from something that happens inside of me, which by the way, I evaluate the sincerity of that thing that happens inside of me. I, I validate the veracity of that thing. I evaluate myself. And so in this fertile field of individualized, churchless Christianity, a whole crop of church substitutes have grown up. Celebrity preachers on the television or radio or, or on the internet now, traveling evangelists, parachurch ministries focusing on either students or, or the military or other, or other subcultures, heretical theologians churning out terrible books all the time. And those are the ones that get sold in Walmart, the checkout, right? Those are the ones that get sold uh, in the grocery stores, the, the, the terrible ones. They're all church substitutes and each in their own way become incredibly successful at finding a following. They sell materials, they raise money, but there are a few things they never do. None of them ever perform the sacraments of baptism and communion. They don't have spiritual authority to disciple, to correct, to admonish, to hold anybody accountable. They have no stability of community. There's, there's, there's no border to their community. There's no defined, defined lines of what makes you a member of this community. And so because there are none of these things, there's no authoritative prophetic gospel voice speaking to the culture to the government, to the arts, to medicine, to education, to the marketplace. No authoritative prophetic voice. It's just a scattering of, of odd voices just in the mix and the mess of the white noise of our culture. Self-professed Christians who reject the church then have no concept of the centrality of the sacraments. They have no sense 
of the power of corporate worship in calling upon the name of the Lord, in using the language of the Psalms. No, no thought of any need to renew covenant with God, to enter into his presence in the heavenlies with all of the saints. No experience of throwing yourself both feet into the faithfulness of public corporate worship, of, of loving the body, of serving the saints, of submitting to church officers, of giving to the church to support her work. Public worship, coming into the special presence of God, receiving the sacraments, hearing the proclamation of the word, gathering with the saints. These are not optional. These are not secondary features of faithful Christian living. You know, it's nice if you can get it here and there. Engagement with the life and worship and sacraments of the church is primary because life flows from the church. The church is at the center of all of life. This is where God has promised to be with us in a special way that he has not promised to be with us in any other way, at any other time, at any other location ever. He is here with us in a special way and we cannot have life apart from it. In, in order for the church to reform the world, in order for the church to transform all of human life as I, I know we want to do, she herself, the church herself must be strengthened and renewed and reformed. But today she's neglected and she's spurned and she's castigated and she's hated and she's ridiculed even by those who claim to be really serious Christians, even, even super reformed Christians. For them, the church, the life of the church really isn't a priority. It just, it's not primary. We've got higher allegiances elsewhere. We find our identity outside of the community of faith. The church is just like a really smart Bible club. That's, that's, what, that's what we do, right? It's just a smart Bible club. And, and people go, you know, to the dumb Bible club and we go to the smart Bible club and that's all it is. It, and it's fine if you can take part in the Bible club when it's convenient. But in no sense is it necessary to us. No, in no sense is it vital. In no sense do we think of the church as, as the nourisher of our faith. As, as, as if life itself, our life, depended upon our faithfulness to her and our love for her. Now, at the very beginning, I read a little section of Paul's letter to the Galatians where he's comparing there the old covenant to the new. He's comparing Israel to the church. And he uses, very interestingly, he uses Sarah and Hagar as an analogy of the two covenants, asking which would you rather be the child of? Would you rather be a child of the free woman or the slave? Who, who's your mommy? You've heard, who's your daddy? Well, this is what Paul is asking. Who's your, who's your mama? Who's your mama? Paul says, Hagar, think of her, think of Mount Sinai like Hagar, who gives birth to bondage. Now, now Sarah, the free woman, is like the Jerusalem which is above. A, a, a term used in other places, the Jerusalem of above, from above is, is a term used in other places for the church. The Jerusalem above, the church, which is free, Paul says, is the mother of us all. Now, we may be uncomfortable using this language. Can, can we talk that way? Can we call the church our mother? Is that what Paul is really saying? Is the church our mother? Is that theologically sound to call the church our mother? Well, commenting on this passage, uh, John Calvin says it way more articulately than I could. So I'm just going to read what he says. John Calvin, on, in commenting on this passage, he says, 
the heavenly Jerusalem, which derives its origin from heaven and dwells above by faith, is the mother of believers. For she has the incorruptible seed of life deposited in her by which she forms us, cherishes us in her womb, and brings us to light. She has the milk and the food by which she continually nourishes her offspring. I'm still reading from Calvin. He says, this is why the church is called the mother of believers. And certainly he who refuses to be a son of the church desires in vain to have God as his father. For it is only through the ministry of the church that God begets sons for himself. That's Calvin. He says, only through the ministry of the church does God beget sons for himself. St. Cyprian in the uh, third century, he put it way more curtly. He says, you cannot have God as your father unless you have the church as your mother. There's, there's no other way. You can't have God as your father unless you have church as your mother. And we're, we're accustomed to thinking of God as our father, and we're even accustomed to thinking Jesus, of, of Jesus as our brother. But as you see, the scriptures say we also have a mother. And our mother is not an annoyance. Our mother is not a distraction from salvation. Our mother gives us Life. Now, now, most American Christians hearing this sort of talk would think, boy, you're speaking some kind of alien language. This is not sound teaching. This, is not, this doesn't sound right. In fact, what it sounds like is you're asking me to replace my belief and trust in Jesus with belief and trust in the church, which is just an institution of, of filthy sinners, right? I mean, is that what you're asking me to do? We're so anti-institutional. That just, that just rocks us to, to hear this kind of talk. But as far as the historical, biblical, orthodox Christian faith is concerned, there is no other Christianity than churchianity. I mean, you've heard that before. I believe in Christianity, not churchianity. Well, as far as the historic Christian faith is concerned, there is no other Christianity but churchianity. If we, and I don't even want to use that, but, but forced to. Jesus identifies himself so closely with his church. Jesus identifies himself with his people in such a union that what does he call the church? He calls the church his body. If the church is the body of Christ, then submitting to the church and trusting the church is not submitting to something other than Christ. You see, you cannot have a relationship with Jesus and reject his bride. You cannot love Jesus and hate or despise his bride. I want to read a few passages uh, and, and listen to what the scriptures say about this. Ephesians 1, 22 says that the church is the fullness of Christ. Here's what Paul says. He says, he, God the Father, put all things under his feet, whose feet? Jesus' feet. God the Father put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, what does Paul say? The church possesses the fullness of Christ. You want to know who Jesus is? Where do you go to hear about him? You want to know Jesus? Where do you go to meet him? You go to the church. The church is the fullest representation of Christ you're going to see on this side of glory. If we're going to have light and light and blessing and living water, there's only one place we're going to get it. And that's the church. He's the vine. We're the branches. The branches have no life in themselves outside of the life of the vine. The church is the body of Christ. It is where Jesus is found. 
It is to the church that, that Jesus has given the authority to preach the gospel, to teach, to preserve his word. It's to the church he's given the, the sacraments. It's to the church that he's given the keys to the kingdom, which is the authority and the obligation to admit people to his table and to bar the unrepentant and false sheep from his table. This is, these, this is the authority he's given to his church. The Savior ministers to us through the members of his body. Uh, we're short on time today, but I do want to hit this quickly. In, in Ephesians 4, uh, verse 11, what, what does God give us to build us up? What does God give us for our sanctification? In Ephesians 4, Paul's, Paul writes, he, gave him, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. How are you pr protected from lies? How are you protected from error? The church protects you. How are you grown up into the image of the Lord Jesus? Well, the church helps you, and specifically the officers and teachers and people in the church given to you for that purpose. We, see, we don't lose our, our identity. We don't lose our, our, our personhood, our individuality, but rather we only become fully human in fellowship with this new humanity. Sanctification happens then, not when you're all off by yourself, isolated from others. That's not how sanctification happens. Sin is defeated, sin is beaten back when you have a vital living interaction with the body. That's how you're delivered from sin. That's how you grow into maturity. Just, just a couple others that, that I just wanna to touch on. In 1 Peter chapter two, Peter's using language of the building or the construction of the temple. And Peter says there, Jesus is the living stone. And when we come to Jesus, we become living stones. We build up this new temple as we partake of his life. He, he says, we're a spiritual house, all interconnected and interdependent upon one another. What if you went house shopping and you, you, your realtor took you by and said, it's a brick. You see this brick? It's a nice brick. Uh, it's, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. I hope you enjoyed it. It's a nice house, right? It's a brick. No, that's not a house. One brick does not make a house. But, but Peter uses this, this image of the, all the bricks interconnected, all the living stones interconnected, building up the whole house, which means that you and I are not called into one-on-one -on -one communion with God. No one is called into a purely personal relationship with God, but we're called into a community. As I pointed out back on Trinity Sunday, when, you, when all you're looking for is a one-on-one -on -one personal individual relationship with Jesus, you're asking for something that, that God himself doesn't have. God does not have a personal individual one-on-one -on -one relationship with Jesus, but shares in the life of the Trinity. It's always been a communal relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And so fellowship with Jesus means communion with the rest of the family. Fellowship is never private. Our growth and maturity depends upon active fellowship with the body. I have never heard a success story about anybody who abandoned the church and then went on to be a really mature Christian. They, they abandoned the church and then they just started growing in the Lord. And they just really, they, they really took off from there. I have seen and you have seen many shipwrecks of the lives of people who thought they were too good for the church. They thought they were too busy for the church. They thought they were too important for the church and they and their lives were destroyed. The church isn't simply a support group for those who have been saved. The church is the saved humanity. The church is the living demonstration of the life of God. If we had time, we'd go to John 17. I may save that for next week. But remember there, Jesus prays to the Father that the Father would make his people one so that the world would see and believe that he and the Father are one, so that the world would see the relationship that exists in the Trinity. If the world is to learn who God is and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, these truths must be present in a visible body. The church is a demonstration of the life of God. And there are so many more things that we could look at, but I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna bring it to a, a point here. If you and I were to be gripped with the vital importance of the church for our own life, for our own salvation, for our own sanctification, as well as its importance for the salvation of all men, then we'll begin to view the church as something other than an auxiliary to our lives. Something other than one of the many clubs and organizations we give our time to. The church isn't just an add-on to our already busy lives. The church is life. The church is our mother in whose arms we are nourished and fed. If we could get a sense of how vital the church is for our lives, for our families' lives, for the life of the world and for the life of all the institutions that we want to see flourish and succeed, if we would get a sense of this, how vital the life of the church is for the life of the world, we would be on the road to the revival and the restoration of the church. Because apart from the life of the church, we will die. Our families will die. All the things we want to see grow and flourish will die. Everything we're trying to build will die. As long as we hold the church at arm's length, as long as we treat her as this odd intrusion into our lives, that, that this, this thing that keeps us from doing what we want to do, you know, I, I'd... I really like to do this other thing. I got church. You know, I got to do this with the church. I got to do this with church people. I don't want to do it. Or, or we treat the church as this unfortunate club that's always scheduling things when, you know, it's just inconvenient. It's, you're always scheduling things when I don't want to do them. You know, you need to call me and get my calendar and sync my calendar, the church calendar. You see, as long as we despise the church, as long as we reject her, she suffers and we grow sick and we die. Now, now, you may say, I, I would be more committed to the church if she were more fill-in-the-blank. I'd be way more willing to, to jump in with both feet if the church were more this. Well, if you hold her at arm's length because of her imperfections, if you hold contempt for the church because she's not everything you wish she would be, and you have your cons yourself convinced that you don't have to jump in with both feet because, because you just hold her in such low judgment, well, 
you're in good company. You're, you're looking at her just like the accuser does. You're viewing her just like the world does. Don't forget that the church has always limped her way through history. And she will always limp through history. In Genesis, we read the promise, the righteous one will crush the head of the serpent, but his heel will be bruised. And so as Jesus bears the wounds in his body, the wounds of his victory over the serpent, so does the church. This body shares in those wounds. The church shares in the shame and rejection of the world. Remember, just as Jacob wrestled with God, and he prevailed, and he limped for the rest of his life, his limp was a symbol, his limp was a sign of his righteousness and of his victory. Paul also had a thorn in the flesh. And since we could just make a leap here with our imaginations, thorns grow in the ground. And so we can assume that maybe the thorn was in his foot, symbolically, symbolically. We know it was a symbolic thorn, right? It wasn't a physical thorn. But Paul had a thorn in the flesh, which kept him limping so that in his weakness, the power of Christ would be evident upon him and his victory was assured. The limping of the church, the way she has always walked, and, and she, has, she limps because she has always had to deal with setbacks and sins. And this underscores the power of Christ upon her. So, so what? So you can point out the weaknesses of the church? Right, I got it, I hear you. She limps, yes, she does. Why does she limp? Because she's stomping on the heads of serpents. That's why she limps. To all the world, she looks like a joke. She looks backwards and out of touch and clueless. That's the way the world views her, full of problems. That's the way the eye of the wicked looks at her. And if you want to share the perspective of the wicked, go right ahead and hold her in disdain and hold her in contempt. But in the eyes of God, she is a spotless bride being prepared for the coming of her husband. She is the mother of us all. So if God loves his church, then to be godly means we'll love her as well. If Jesus loves his church, then to be Christ-like means we will love her as well. People of God, respect your mother. And if I were to be a little bit Southern, I'd say respect your mama. Respect your mama. Love, love your mother. Rejoice in your mother. When your mother calls you, you come. Submit to your mother. Honor your mother. Hold up her reputation. Don't think you're going to get nourishment and care anywhere else. We, people of God, need a change of perspective on the church. We must elevate her in our affections. We must seek her good all of our days and teach our children to do the same. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us uh, such uh, understanding of what you are accomplishing through your people, that we do love her, that we do love the church. Love her in spite of her weaknesses and her errors and love her in such a way that we build her up, that we strengthen her, that we pour ourselves into her so that she is strengthened, so that she is uh, purified as a spotless bride. Father, give us this energy and this motivation. We can only do this by your Holy Spirit. And so we depend upon your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.